You're listening to the CapEx Big Question podcast, where we're joined by other investors, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs discussing global game-changing trends and burning topics that keep investors up at night, one question at a time. I recorded a conversation with my friend Paul Rosenberg. Paul is the founder and CEO of Crypto Hippie USA. He's a lifestyle capitalist with a number of experiences under his belt, including philosophy, theology, history, psychology, and physics. He's one of those gents that I really enjoy speaking to because there's so many different elements to his way of thinking. Paul has published a number of titles, including A Lodging of Wayfaring Men, one of my favorites, The Words of the Founders, as well as Production versus Plunder. Paul had a highly successful engineering career, which called him as an expert witness in numerous legal cases and recruited as a consultant to a number of high-profile organizations such as the U.S. military and NASA. He has developed and taught 19 different continuing education courses for Iowa State University College of Engineering, and he's also co-founded the Fiber Optic Association and, in fact, wrote the first ever standard for the installation of fiber optics cables. Paul has a new book out called The Breaking Dawn. Where this book is about economics, technology, theology, philosophy, social activism, and I'm really intrigued to find out what Paul's thoughts are on the current market environment and what this means for us as individuals seeking liberty and freedom. So, Paul, I wonder if you can tell me, is this book a follow-on from A Lodging of Wayfaring Men? Um, it's not actually a follow-on directly, although, you know, it's... It's not, uh, it has some similarities, of course, um, but it's not different characters, different uh, situation a few years further along in time uh, than Wayfaring Men and of honestly more scope. So it's not exactly a follow on, although there's certainly, you know, themes that you know, what matters to me still matters to me. <laughs> Right. And, you know, you were talking, you, I, I heard you, I think better than you heard me. Um, you were talking about changes over the last five, 15 years, whatever. And I think some of those that you're talking about are um, surveillance and surveillance combined with uh, big data and, and uh, artificial intelligence and things like that. Uh, that's definitely a, a fairly big component of this book, certainly, of, uh, well, of about two-thirds of it. It's a major component. Let's dig into that, Paul, because there's two – the way I look at these things, this technology itself is accelerating all the time, right? Uh, Moore's right. law exists. It's been ex in an existence for uh, – and documented for well over 50 years now. And that actual level of exponential growth is, is exceeding because – if you if you're doubling any number over a particular period of time, you you reach you have a parabola, and so right it gets crazy. Yeah. So so we're into that now certainly. Um, yes. And so the the technological innovations and uh, that we've seen over the last sort of ten fifteen years have been quite stunning to people. What I think is coming is going to be, or should if that law holds true will be an order of magnitude higher. Now, there's two elements, of course, to technology. One is that it can be used for good, and one is that it can be used for evil. The question right. that is prevailing in my mind is, what do those particular forces look like at the moment? Now, that's exactly what we cover in the book. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, at the moment, to me, um, we have, uh, on one side, we have, well, really, we have the question of technology being what it is. 
who owns it, who controls it, who says thou mayest and thou mayest not, or who is beyond control. And technology, when it is centrally controlled and controlled by people who use force and domination, is really, really dangerous. Technology, when it's a hand, in the hands of free human beings, they use it sometimes stupidly, they use it sometimes really well, but in the long run, it's a massive benefit. It can be extremely liberating, as we've seen with the various oh, technologies massively. that have come along in the last 20, 30 years. The link between economic well-being and technology is, um, is unmistaken. Mm-hmm. I guess the question between because it's it's there's two systems it's it's the centralized and the decentralized system the centralized system concentrates power and the decentralized system does the opposite the decentralized system may as you refer may not mean that any individual uses a particular particular technology intelligently Um, and even if they use it can they can and even if they use it for evil purposes they are one pebble on the beach, as so to speak, yes. or, or maybe a dozen pebbles on the beach, but they're not an oligarchic structure which dominates and coerces and forces. So precisely, we have artificial intelligence now, which is taking hold. I just saw recently that um, the Google computer beat one of the top players at Go, I think was the, the game. That Go, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was a few years back that Watson beat the Russian chess player. So we've got... That's exactly right. Yeah. And yes. and so these things are getting better and better. And certainly that's the world that we're entering. Or, or quite frankly, we actually, it exists today. It just doesn't, it doesn't exist on a, on a massive playing field in terms of that, the distribution of that technology. Right. And the breaking dawn begins with a world that's forced by economics to divide itself into two parts. One is dominated by the centralized control of technology, and the other is kind of tossed back 50 years, and then they uh, are left to their own devices and begin to rebuild with technological knowledge already in hand. So while neither of us have a crystal ball, mm-hmm. we... If only. Where do you, <laughs> if only, yeah. Where do, you think the chips, where do you think the chips lie? You know, I think since 9-11... Um, there's just simply been too much mindless obedience among too many millions of people. And I think the centralized controllers um, have had their way. And I think they're going to lead us or lead whomever into a collapse, an economic collapse. And the sharper and clearer that collapse, the more, the more likelihood uh, that those of us who give a damn have a chance to rebuild uh, and outside of their complete control. And I think they're setting up for a, se- they are there for a separation. They're already separating in, in some ways. Um, there was a, a story, as I was putting together some of these ideas, that ran uh, in the Chicago Tribune of all places, that they were putting in uh, the big utility company and their backers were putting in a superconducting cable. Oh, okay, all right. What are they going to do with it? They're going to have it there. So if there's any problem anywhere, they can cut off all the suburbs and bring power just into the center city and let this the outer areas run run free. No power. Sorry, you're out of luck. We've got to defend the center. 
And what's happening now with a lot of government, uh, a lot of governments, big, small, municipal, whatever, is that they are really running out of cash and running out of whatever money for um, pensions and so on. And at some point, they have to consolidate and cut off services, which they can no longer afford to provide. Uh, that is, if you know, zero interest loans ever ever stop. Mm-hmm. And I think that's coming. Okay, so let's let's throw some rocks at that. Okay, let's say you and I are sitting in an outer lying area, right? So we're not central central city, and we get cut off. Going back twenty, thirty years, that would have been fairly devastating for us. The loss of usage for water supply, power in particular. Certainly, if we we're in a cold environment, power would be a massive mm-hmm. issue. Today right. we have we have the technologies, or there are increasing technologies that allow us an an option out. So the cost of solar is something that I've written about um, ex- fairly extensively. That has completely collapsed, and at the same time, the componentry within it has gotten better, um, which which happens when you have cost reduction because it's the exactly. scale of economies, and so. That is accelerating at breakneck speed. I mean, the amount of solar in existence in 2014, in the in 2015, there was more solar capacity added in the year 2015 than existed in the entire world in 2014, just in China. So that's one country. No kidding. I didn't know that. So... Yeah, and then Japan is also spending an enormous amount because Japan has their own issues in, with respect to not having fossil fuels, right? And then they've right. had the Chernobyl. Sorry, Chernobyl. They've had the almost. Uh, yeah, they almost had a Chernobyl disaster, and so they've they've looked for alternative energy sources, and um, they've been spending um, an enormous amount on on solar capacity. So, but just on, at an individual level, um, we built a house. In New Zealand about 12 years ago and at the time I looked at uh, its solar installation my cost for that and my payback period at the time was 33 years today that payback period due to the cost reduction and due to the 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 better solar capacity is now Mm -hmm. down to three and a half years Right. Oh so, my. so you've so so now you know. Come back to the story of you and I sitting in some outlying suburb, and we get cut off. We have an option just on on that front. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that we have a we're living in some place that actually has sunshine. But the point, I guess, that I'm making is that there's you know technology itself tends to be something which can be used by anybody. Yeah, they have regular generators, gas generators, and so on. That there are a lot of uh, fast food outlets that are being put in now, McDonald's or whomever. But they don't have a connection, or just have a, a supplementary connection to the grid, and they run on gas generators, and they'll run for ten, twenty, twenty-five years, and they provide cheaper power than can be bought from the grid. Which is again that centralized system. The grid is centralized. Exactly, and they, so. the, that's that's one of the energy sources. Of course, you've got things like run over river hydro, um, depending on where you're living, which now exactly. can be used relatively cheaply. Certainly, if you've got a, a long enough time frame, it's something that you that people are increasingly looking at and utilizing um, on their own properties, whereby they can, for, uh, within sort of a 
five-year time frame have essentially free energy built and, and controlled by themselves. And so these sorts of, the, the ability for the individual to rise above a centralized control system increases every single day. And at the same time, oh, it's wonderful. the yeah. snatch and grab that exists from the centralized powers increases every single day, as we've seen. And so, so yeah. there's, there's, there's these two forces and they're both racing towards some climax. The centralized powers, as we well know, are completely bankrupt. And so they're increasingly desperate. That concerns me immensely. And I, I suspect yeah. I remember when, when you and I were in Aspen, would have been last year, not year before last, actually. Uh, I think discussed. a year, yeah, a year and a half ago or so. Yeah, you know, some of these things were discussed, and um, today we just we're further down that track. But the pressures today are in order of magnitude higher than they were back in um, in August 2014 when when you and I discussed these things. So yeah, what is it? Are there any particular thoughts that you've got with respect to geographies that that you're looking at for example or tech specific technologies that you're looking at to well, try and I, identify where we're going with this yeah there there are actually there's a whole bunch of things i'm looking at for geographies um outside of uh, center cities and a distance from center cities uh that to me is, is the central geography that that's that we're looking at before too many years whether that's one year or 10 years or 20 years i don't know um, I've, I wish I could see behind all the, you know, central banker curtains to know what's going on, but I can't. Um, but they're going to have to protect their core cities and they're going to have to let the far flung areas go. Uh, so the core cities, if you're familiar with the great sci-fi series, Firefly, um, they had a, a kind of a similar sort of model where there were these core cities that were pristine and beautiful and a fed on every corner. And uh, everything was locked down, everything was controlled, everything was sanitized, including their mines. And then you had the rustic areas and the outer, in, the, in that case, outer planets, but it, the outer areas were rustic. And that's precisely what happens when things break down. It's what happened in the Middle Ages. Uh, it's what happens when, when those types of things break down. You get core cities that are maintained to the last minute. They get areas that are cut loose, and then you have some sort of tributary areas in the middle. And I think that's what we're headed for. Uh, but I think more important than geography, whether it be hills or flats or hots or colds, are the minds of the people. Because humans can adapt. I mean, goodness, we have Eskimos who live in, in perma-ice. Uh, we have people that live in, in on the edges of deserts and sometimes in deserts. Humans are immense, immensely adaptable folks. So I'm not as much concerned about physical topography as I am about what's going on in their minds and do they believe that they have to wait for, for orders to do anything or do they just get up and do it? If it's the latter, there's always hope. If it's the former, well, they're kind of stuck. And so what does this mean for freedom, Paul? It means that uh, central cities are going to be a hazard and it means that farther areas are going to be a place to rebuild and there where you can actually do things. Not, not that doing things will be particularly easy, but as you're saying, so much easier than it was 15, 20 years ago. Even regarding the internet, we don't need the central internet in order to function. 
there are things called mesh networks, which is essentially just Wi-Fi. Then you can build mesh networks in, in your little valley. You can build mesh networks in your, in your city, your town. You can build mesh networks all over. There's one in rural Spain that connects 30,000 users. And mesh networks can be control, connected together without having to go through NSA Central and AT&T Central and Verizon Central. You can just go person to person. Now you can't. You're not going to be sending, you know, a three-hour HD video of your, you know, of your kid's graduation to your cousin. Uh, it won't work for that. It's possible, but it'll take forever. Uh, but for anything that matters, the Internet of 1990 something, which allowed us to communicate beautifully, no problem. You can do that right now. And in my book, that's what a lot of people do. They build their own systems. And that's the setup today, right? And if we look at Moore's Law, where you have a doubling of transistors every 18 to 24 months, in five years' time, those mesh networks look significantly different, presumably. Exactly. Exactly. And, it's, and it's, they can be connected together. There's a wonderful thing called packet radio, which is a ham radio, essentially, that's designed for sending data packets. And it works quite well. Um, there are other things. You can... You can connect fibers if you can get them. You can do also any any effective means of connecting. You can connect one mesh to the other. Uh, it's 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 really not even hard. It's interesting. And was, we have that option. Yeah, it's interesting. I was speaking with one of the one of our members just um, last week. The, the smart people that we come across, they seem to all intuitively understand that there's no requirement to actually be in some large city. And they look upon that as something which which is antiquated. The the need to say live in, and pay expensive rents and deal with pollution and all these sorts of things just seems contrary to any any real logic. And the setup is such that we don't have to do that anymore. We can, uh, I mean, for example, I will spend time in cities, but I fly in and I fly out. I don't need to be living in them. And as such, I can live in a in a fairly pristine environment at the beach. I can enjoy all of the, the, the things that make life for me a whole lot more valuable. And yet I, I, ha- I don't lose connectivity. I still have... I can still run businesses. I can still trade markets. I can, I can do everything that I had done when I worked in in Manhattan and London and various other places, just as easily. In fact, better because I can um, I can do them on my own time. You know, it's it's a it's a little bit surprising to me, Paul, that more people don't do that. There are there are groups of of people who are doing it, and I got a friend in Singapore who has a trading business and he has a number of traders around the world. All of these traders are living in places like the Caymans in Barbados, in Nelson, New Zealand, in pretty much off the, not off the grid, but in, you know, certainly not in, in centers. In city right. Centers. And, and, and it's easier to focus a lot of times in those places. Uh, there are fewer distractions, which is, you know, very nice for certain jobs like trading <laughs> and writing. Yep. And, you know, I mean, cities have their, have their draw. They have, there's nice things about cities. I enjoy cities myself, but you don't have to live there. Uh, sometimes you do. Some people have to. Okay, fine. Uh, 
but you don't really have to be there anymore. And even if you wish to work in a city, commuting is so much, is really just not that hard anymore. Uh, there are trains, the automobiles are so good these days, you can get college courses, for goodness sake, to listen to while you drive to and from work. Uh, you can make use of the time. So there's all sorts of options of things we can do. And it's it's really good to see that more people are are taking a solid look at it and saying, you know, maybe I maybe I would like to live out uh, two hours away from town uh, this time. Let me give it a try. Some will like it. Some maybe won't. That's fine. But at least people are trying it and doing something different. And the more non-uniform behavior we get is probably better. I'd say that's true for sure. The other component, of course, that we haven't really covered is that where centralized power exists, that's a crumbling infrastructure because economically it's broke. And so right, exactly. even if you're one who desires and enjoys living in, in, in some city, which happens to be the centralization of that power, there's increasing pressures around that. And so that we're seeing the breakdown at the periphery. Oh, yes. I know, I know myself. Several people who have run from cities have been chased, to be honest, uh, by ever-increasing taxes, by rapacious uh, building inspectors and people like that. It's just red light cameras everywhere. They have literally chased. I know one young man who had a, it was his grandfather's business, so, you know, small neighborhood business in a big city. And, but it was his grandfather's business, and he had a lot of emotional ties to it. And he wanted to keep it running. And finally, just there are too many building inspectors hitting him for too many ridiculous things. So wanting uh, sales taxes uh, six years after the fact uh, that they weren't entitled to anyway. Finally, he just packed up and left. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's Atlas Shrugged all over again, isn't it? Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, and I, I understand why people are leaving. They're, they're, it's probably the right choice for most of them. So, Paul, you mentioned artificial intelligence earlier. That's right. an area which we focus on quite. I mean, we've got a we have a list of, I guess, what could be con considered exponential types of technologies, which, from an investment perspective, provide us with massive asymmetry. Within that spectrum, you know, we have things like synthetic biology, artificial intelligence is in there, blockchain technology, mm -hmm. um, robotics, and a number of other things. But artificial intelligence itself really spans all of them to a certain extent? Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a blanket term. Uh, but I, I kind of love like most of the things you're mentioning. Uh, blockchain, I'm, I'm a big advocate for Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies and variants on the cryptocurrency idea, uh, again, because it's centerless. Uh, and I like it quite a bit. Robotics, I'm really big on robotics. Uh, it's a sensitive thing for some people because, well, they're going to take our jobs. Yeah, they are, but we're better off. Do we really want to go back to the point where all of us were working on the land and give up mechanized farming? It's the same, it's the same thing. Yeah, we've had this argument before. I mean, if you go back to right. where, where, when there was a massive concern that uh, those in the, in the trade of horses, uh, the equestrian yes. trade, it was, it was going to be devastating, right? Because you had, you know this entire industry and all of the people that it employed was going to be devastated by the, the railroad and the motor car. And then, you know, we look at that today and we, it's just, it seems so absurd because again... Right, but at the time, people were very much exercised over 
Right. Oh, oh, there was yeah, there was um, outcry around it, and and the same was true of blacksmiths. You, you can go through history, and there's, you know, blacksmithing to us now is is that's not a that's not a technology that just seems <laughs> well, absurd. It's but, something you see in a, in a Renaissance fair, yeah. exactly. But that was so, and I remember reading a a book many years ago around the the weaving industry. Where oh, yes. you know you had weavers, and then they brought on the, the the technology that was you know essentially automating weaving, and there was there were riot there was rioting in the streets. There was a huge outcry against it because again there was this the you know this uh, there was the, the the loss of the jobs that came with it. Forgetting of course yes. that humans are so adaptive, and if you're not doing one thing, you'll find something else to do, and. The, right. pro- the proponents of these sorts of things are the very people who have no creativity because they can't envisage <laughs> something that yes, that you're entirely correct doesn't yet exist. Uh, you know, you're always fighting that, but I think as technology increases, it's look, it's unstoppable. It's 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 akin to the East German police after the fax machine yeah. had come along, trying to stop. That once the information flow was there, and once the knowledge was in the, in uh, in the hands of the people, it was it was unstoppable. It is you cannot fight it. The underlying factor in all of this is that scarcity is dying uh, due to technology. If you look at Julian Simon's work, uh, he spent a lot of time. He has wonderful charts of the price of wheat and the price of other commodities, copper, so on, measured in daily wages. And just over the last century or two, they're flatlining. Uh, we, we work, uh, you know, 10 minutes for wheat these days, where in the old days we'd work two hours, three hours for wheat. Um, and robotics are just another step on that, on that line. So what happens is that we don't need more jobs. Uh, right now in the U.S., there are 94 million people who don't even count towards unemployment, who aren't who aren't working, who don't even count to unemployment, so they can keep their numbers good. But there's no need for th- for those jobs because we have no shortages of anything. If you if you've got everything you need, if there's no shortages, you don't need more jobs. Well, the more robotics come in, the more that, that compounds itself. Uh, when we have robotic security guards and robotic truck drivers and so on and so on, all of these jobs are unnecessary and the price of those things drops. When you have a machine that can make three, 400 hamburgers in an hour and good ones, you don't need five guys manning a grill. And the price of the hamburger drops. Uh, and it's good for all of us except for the system. The system is built on the hook of be a good boy and girl, do what we say, and if you work hard and try, you'll have a good job and you'll be able to raise a family. Because it's it's the decentralization. I mean, the, the, yes. if you look at the power structure, the, the existing, call it democracy, which is a bit of a joke. It's not, not a bit of a <laughs> right. joke. It's a massive joke. But regardless, there is, uh, uh, during the Industrial Revolution, you had a centralization of economic force. And so that translated into a centralization of political force and political power. And today, that does not exist. So if you think, uh, so right now there's this this argy-bargy going on between Apple and the US government, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I look at that and I sit there and I think to myself, you know, it wouldn't be very difficult to take Apple and move 
Why? Because it's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's intellectual property. You can literally put the value of Apple, because it's not, in, it's not in the hardware, it's not even in the factories, which don't exist in the United States. It's in the intellectual right. property. And that can be literally stored on a thumb drive. And you can get on yeah. an airplane and leave and go to a jurisdiction which is for far more uh, um, pleasant for you. And so yeah. that is true of Google. It is true of Apple. It is true of pretty much anything. And if you, again, we're talking about robotics and artificial intelligence, the value behind robotics is not going to be in the little robot that runs around and cleans your house for you or administers medicine or any any of the, the myriad of things which they're increasingly doing. It is in the intellectual property. And that in itself can be transferred uh, seamlessly. It, it, it can be transferred over the blockchain, right? Yeah, it can be done any number of ways, uh, you know, encrypted, whatever. It's that knowledge, it's that information of how to do this, which is, of course, always evolving. But, you know, it, it doesn't need a place. It just needs a few people here and there, you know, to, to build this and build that. And they can move. And it's not hard for them to move these days. No. Or they, you can just use this factory and then next month use one in, in Hong Kong. And the next month use one that's in Dubai. I don't know, wherever. And then, of course, the one thing that we haven't yet covered, but that really is a game changer in terms of all of this, is additive printing, right? So if you need to produce something and your intellectual property is sitting on a thumb drive or on a hard disk or sitting in, in a cloud storage somewhere, and you need to turn that intellectual property into physical good, increasingly that's something that you're going to be able to do at very low cost, and you can do it locally. Yeah, so. Sure. There's a company which I'm friendly with where I happen to be living and these guys do titanium printing and they, you know, they, they live. So to put this into context, I live in a little beach resort. There's a roughly 150,000 people. Yeah, it's tiny, right? Mm-hmm. And this particular company is the largest titanium printing company in the world. They do all of this stuff for Boeing and so on and so forth. These guys live at the beach. Right now, going back 20, 30 years ago, that was not possible. You would have needed to be in a large city and you would have needed to be close to the manufacturing hubs in order for your business to work. Today, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. And so they don't move because they don't want to move because they like living at the beach and they're competing with the companies and the corporates that exist in those other jurisdictions. And they can also compete, Paul, because their cost of operations are fractionally lower. So Exactly. Exactly. They, there's no reason for them to have a six-story building uh, in order to house all these people and make them all drive to the same place at the same time. There's no need for it. No. So these are all very positive aspects, which, you know, I look at this, and, and the world's so exciting to me, Paul. I look at the mm-hmm. opportunities and I look at what freedom we can get out of it and what wealth can be built for everybody. Yeah. It's astounding. I mean, I think about your Maasai warrior today standing in, in the desert has, with a cell phone, with a smartphone, <laughs> has the amount of information at his fingertips that the U.S. president had literally 10 to 15 years ago. Yeah, so I mean, that, there's really... There's no reason 
for that anybody on earth, and we could include several more billion people if we wanted them, uh, should, should starve, should uh, be deprived of things. We know how to grow food. We know how to process things. We're learning more all the time. We have the ability to feed 10, 12, 15 billion people. Uh, right now, we, we don't grow, at least in, in the United States, uh, we don't grow more wheat than we grow because there's no need for it. And uh, there, there's really no need for poverty. There's no need for deprivation upon Earth right now. Scientifically, we know how to give everybody what they need. Human wants, well, you can never, you know, you can never solve wants. That's, that's a different no. issue. But in terms of eating well and having a decent, decent shelter and decent transportation, we can do that. We know how. The problem is that we have these centralized beasts that don't want to let anybody do things without the rules. Correct. And the hope is that they are under enough pressure to collapse. Certainly, yeah, that's well, economically the case. I'm quite sure they're going to crack. The question is how, when, where, and all that. But the economic system they have now simply cannot last very long. No, the question is how that rolls out. It's a, it's a topic that we're right. going to be covering in um, um, hosting a small, small meeting in Singapore in a few oh, weeks' time to be covering some of these topics with some very, very smart, intelligent people. And um, so I'm pretty excited about that. It's one of the obvious things to me is that as this proceeds, there's going to be a there's going to be a wall. Um, that well, would be that's sadly the, a good possibility. They've been trying. And if you throw rocks at that particular concept, that can only really do one thing. It can it can devastate a lot, which it it likely would do. But it also does. it also brings about the demise of the very parties that institute it because it is extremely mm -hmm. costly and we've seen this with so-called terrorism right you can go and you can spend what does a b-52 bomber cost i don't know but it's, oh, it's i don't know tens of millions at least it's yeah it's got a few commas in it and yeah, then right, it <laughs> and then to drop one of the bombs it's again um over a million dollars per bomb now mm -hmm. you're fighting a disparate group of people and they can retaliate as we've seen them retaliate with something that can cost them under a thousand dollars and do yeah. an equivalent amount of damage. So the the economics of warfare have changed. And they have, yes. And if if nothing else, those that proceed with the um, current economic model of, of warfare, which is extremely costly, um, to my mind, they just bring about their own demise a lot quicker than might otherwise be the case, which as as painful as that is likely to be, it's needed. It's necessary. Right. At least it, it brings something to a close. Yeah. 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 What a way. <laughs> but certainly... Um, Looking at um, these these various technologies and how they how they're taken up socially and how they're um, instituted throughout society is is quite fascinating to us. It's a, it's a sector that we look at intensively. You know, our our research team are always looking at deals in that space, and it's it's, it's completely oh, it's it's so fascinating. It's it's ridiculous what's taking place, and it's it 
as much as one can look at the negatives and be upset and angry about things that are taking place, there are some amazing, awesome things that are taking place at the same time which counteract a lot of this. And so right. it's important to try and focus on the positives um, mm-hmm. because that's, you know, the world the world of our future is one which we need to make. And Exactly. I have people ask me, well, so are you optimistic or pessimistic? Well, the answer is both. It depends about what. But long term, I am massively optimistic. Humanity is, I mean, we have a lot of, you know, ugly things facing us right at the moment. Okay, fine. We have a lot of good things that are building up too. And long term, we're golden. We really are. Yeah. We just have to get there. I agree. Paul, it's been fantastic chatting to you. I'm really, really looking forward to June when you're going to be joining us out in San Diego. That's going to be fantastic. Yeah, me too. And there's a few genes I'm going to be introducing you to. I think you're going to get along like a house on fire with. I bet I will. (laughs) And um, we're going to have a great time. But your book that's coming out, when's that being published? Well, it's at the it's at the printer now. I expect to have copies in hand um, next week. Uh, the Amazon, everything is pretty much all ready to to rock and roll. It's up on Kindle already. Uh, we won't turn on the uh, the regular Amazon link until we actually have books in our hands. But it's ready to go, and it's called the Breaking Dawn, and it should be available within a week or two. Fantastic. Well, I'll put a link to that underneath oh, this recording. Thank you. I'll be definitely grabbing my own copy. So <laughs> I look forward to it. I loved, I loved the Lodging Wayfaring Men. That was just oh, that was fantastic. I really, um, Thank you. really enjoyed that. And so I can't wait to get, get my hands on this one. It is not the same old, same old. I promise you that much at least. <laughs> Great. I look forward. Well, Paul, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. And until we next chat, take care. You too, my friend. Sure. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in. CapEx Big Question Podcast is sponsored by Seraph, an exclusive private global network of individual investors and family offices dedicated to growing their wealth exponentially by investing in game-changing global trends. To learn more about Seraph, go to seraph.vc. That's S-E-R-A-P-H dot V for Vicky, C for Charlie.